I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange, which is now a podcast. Subscribe today. It's your one-stop shop for the day's top business stories. Plus, listen in for lots of original reporting, in-depth conversation, and some of the best of CNBC's award-winning investigative work. Subscribe to The Exchange for free, and you can always catch The Exchange live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you, so call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. If you want to understand this market, I mean, really understand it, you need to throw away nearly everything we've learned about stocks over the past decade. I keep telling you this time is indeed different, which means you can't take your cue from the playbook that worked in more troubled times. For example, we've developed a vicious tendency to want to give up on stocks of companies that slip up, especially after big moves, just to cut and run, sell, 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 and never look back. But you know what? These days, that tendency will lead you astray. Including on days like today, where the Dow slipped four points, even as the S&P advanced 0.22%, and the Nasdaq gained 0.71%. Old habits, as we know, are hard to break. And the habit of bailing on stocks after disappointing news, something that did indeed work for years and years, is no longer necessarily a money-making strategy. In fact, I'll go as far as say it is a money loser. Classic example of what I'm talking about, the cut and run, the stock of Bank of America. For eight years, every time this stock came near the $20 to $21 level, it failed. It failed spectacularly. That was easy. You had to sell it each time. Why? Because something would go wrong, and you'd end up sitting on a stock that was about to embark on another seesaw ride down, and it would indeed crush you. But that all changed after President Trump's surprise victory in November of 2016, ushering in a more benign regulatory environment. Of course, it's Donald Trump. Our booming economy is part of a global expansion that's happening worldwide. The point, though, is that this strength allows the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates, and that translates directly into more profits for companies like Bank of America. Well, what happened this time around? The stock blew through the $21 level. That was over a year ago. And you know what? It hasn't looked back. It has not even given you an even an area of buying opportunity. And it's leaving a lot of sour one-time holders in the dust. Now it's just shy of 32 bucks. And I think it's got a lot more room to run. Writing off Bank of America because it was up too much after always hitting that ceiling, it was a big mistake. And if you sold it, well, you ended up leaving a lot of money on the table. And I don't know how you get back in. Same goes for Caterpillar. For six years, every time this stock would rally toward 120 bucks, it would collapse, either because of problems with China, slowdown in the U.S., foreign competition, issues with the dealer network, stronger dollar. There was always something. So it made sense to dump cat whenever the stock got ahead of itself. It got so bad that shares fell to the low 60s in late 2015, half of where it was, as the remaining bulls finally capitulated en masse. 
By the way, Bank of America, Caterpillar stock has then turned around and has now blasted right through its putative $120 ceiling just a few months ago. And since then, it has been off to the races, climbing to $169 as of today. That's what happens when you have a synchronized global economic expansion where companies all over the world need cats machines to construct anything of size. Once again, you had to resist the urge to sell on the bad news or you lost out on an amazing opportunity. Or if you, heaven forbid, you could actually buy on bad news. Yeah, buying on bad news. That's how people are making their money. And of course, when a high quality stock gets hit on allegedly bad news, not real bad news. Well, I mean, you got to buy the stock intraday. Consider a week ago, Mark Zuckerberg, yeah, Facebook, Facebook, talked about how Facebook had to make some radical changes to keep its user base happy. No more junked up experience. No more arrogance about what you should read. He admitted it might cause some short-term pain, but it's for the customers. He said it had to be done because the customers are what matters. Hey, old-fashioned throwback. Wall Street hated it, and the stock got slammed from $187 down to $177 over a couple of days. All sorts of commentators told you that Facebook had totally lost its mojo, that it was done, that it was finished, that it was finito. Buried. <sighs> Let me ask you, what's your friends say? What's your family say? What's your wife or husband say, your kids? Well, everyone I know said the same thing. Good. I had stopped using Facebook because it was such a chore. Nearly all of them had gravitated toward Facebook's Instagram instead, leaving potentially a lot of viewers off on the table. In short, Zuckerberg was responding to Facebook's need to restore its reputation in order to stay off a potential deceleration in the business. This movie announced is as a good thing and will most likely lead to higher ad rates as advertisers push for a better user experience and therefore exposure to the company's precious worldwide audience. Plus, in the interim, Facebook's still got a lot of assets that can be monetized. Think about WhatsApp. So, of course, the stock has now come back with a vengeance. It's up more than a dollar from where it was when Zuckerberg made the pronunciation of death. It's up a dollar from then. You sold it on the so-called bad news, and now I have no idea how you're going to get back in. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. Okay, so let's deal with some works in progress on a go-forward basis. First, a few weeks ago, STZ, Constellation Brands, failed to make its numbers after a long streak of phenomenal earnings beats. Wines, not the company's bedrock Corona Modelo franchise, or Pacifico, were at fault. CEO Rob Sands said the weakness will be ephemeral. He's made these kinds of calls before when there's been some weakness, and he's always backed it up. This time, by huge bucks, a $3 billion buyback announced here in conjunction with that quarterly report. Now, I told members of ActionAlertsPlus.com Club that it was time to buy Constellation to this dozen point dip, which is exactly what we did for the trust. Now, regular viewers know that in my spare time, including tonight, I like to host a Basamigal, my small plate Mexican restaurant in Brooklyn. We sell a ton of Constellation Casanova tequila brand. You know that they pay less than $30 million for this incredibly hot brand, the one that everybody's try, trying to keep in stock? And then what did we learn yesterday? Bacardi shelled out five bill for Patron. I can't even move that stuff. Patron. It's like an American brand, okay? Casanova is Mexican. That's where tequila's from. 
Yet it's not even in the forecast for Constellation. Makes me think that the stock is worth a lot more than what it's currently trading. And who's even thinking about that? I mean, you, you had the uh, Casamigos, you have this. This man, Rob Sands, paid almost nothing for the one that is, to me, the best and maybe the hottest. You want another? I have no idea what the post-earnings tsunami of selling and IBM was all about. But I can tell you, the quarter wasn't nearly as bad as the bears would have you believe. Now you know what the stock is doing? What I said it would do. It's recovering. Oh, it's not done. It's got a lot more room to run. You know why? Because the quarter was good and the forecast was great. I have no idea how that narrative got blocked out. But in the old days, people would stay away from that thing like it's toxic. Me? I want more. How about Procter & Gamble and J&J? You ever heard of those guys? Johnson Johnson? Mm, well, I'll tell you, that stock got hammered. Procter reported a widely panned quarter this morning. All I can say is, are you kidding me? The company's already improving itself under the leadership of CEO David Taylor. It's only going to get better now that Nelson Peltz, big-time activist, insurgent, can bring his firepower to bear on the board of directors, bring a lot of new ideas to the table, maybe take some costs out. J&J reported a terrific quarter, but it got almost simultaneously hit with some bad news over patent exclusivity for a key drug called Remicade. It's a miracle drug. Stock got trashed. You know what? This is precisely when you want to buy a stock like Johnson Johnson. Sure, I know there'll be some doofus will cut numbers tomorrow and tell you to get out of the stock because of the loss of exclusivity. That's what Wall Street does. It's like, hey, I'm a doofus, sell J&J. But this stock rarely ever comes down. And uh, what is this management going to do other than find more ways to make you money? That's what CEO Alex Gorsky's charged with, and that's what he'll do. Of course, it's jarring to see the stocks of these two iconic companies get hit. And perhaps in the market of 18 months ago, they needed to spend several quarters in the penalty box. You know, I don't know, 18-month majors before they'd be safe to own. Now, though, I'm saying that these are straight-out buying opportunities. Companies with terrific CEOs who are determined to create value see their stocks bounce back pretty quickly in this environment. It's the new nature of the beast. Here's the bottom line. This bull market is like nothing we've seen since the great rallies of the 80s and 90s. If you take your cue from the last decade, you're going to miss out on some incredible opportunities. You'll be blind to them. We're now in a world where bad news is good news because bad news is the only thing that gives you enough of a meaningful pullback that you can pull the trigger, like the kinds we're seeing in Constellation Brands, Procter & Gamble, or J&J. Take advantage of them. They just don't come around often enough anymore. Brian in New York. Brian! Hello. Thanks for taking my call. Absolutely. What's going on? Uh, my questions are about Archer Daniel Midland. Uh, ADM has received a bit of buying support here recently behind the news about a merger deal with Bungie. Yeah, with Bungie. I've been, I've been a longtime holder of ADM stock in my 401k as a previous employee and believer of the idea that the world needs grain slash food logistics. So I was wondering, you know, what is the likelihood of merger? You know, I don't know what the likelihood is, but I want you to hold on to it. It's got a 3%. You know, I've favored deer and agco for a long time, but no sense to cut and run now. I think that the news, if they get bungy, it's big. And if they don't, it's got that nice yield. So let's just stay in the stock. I now want to go clear across the country to Richard in Arizona. Richard! Hi, Jim. Hey, Richard. Um, I'm looking at a company. It's about a three and a half to four billion dollar market cap. It's very profitable. 
Marquee ratio five. Uh, it's uh, Bed Bath and Beyond. Do you I think keep waiting. I thought the last quarter week? wasn't as nearly as bad as the critics. I keep waiting and waiting and waiting for good news. I'm being paid two and a half percent. Why do that? I do not think this is the level to give up on Bed Bath, even as I admit that they are the focus of the Death Star, Amazon. I think they still have some game. Anyway, down from sixty to twenty. The idea of writing off a company after one bad event, it's no longer prudent. It's rash. And rash will cost you a lot of money. Man Money Tonight, it's an under-the-radar player operating in some of the hottest areas of tech. I'll reveal the name just ahead and you'll love it. Then Netflix may be hitting all-time highs, but I'll tell you why it's bumming me out. And the backdrop in oil seems to have changed on a dime. I'm going off the charts to see if we're celebrating the move too soon, and maybe it's time to ka-ching, ka-ching. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. I keep telling you, every now and then, this beast of a bull market, it will blink, giving you terrific buying opportunities and high-quality stocks. But these opportunities tend not to last very long. That's another theme of the show. You have to be ready to pounce. Bye, bye, bye! Or else you'll miss your chance to get a lower price than you deserve. That's why tonight I'm going to go right into the heart of the beast. I'm going to set one up for you, tee it up for tomorrow morning. I'm going to tell you about TE Connectivity. Symbol TEL. It's a major electronics manufacturer that reports tomorrow that you've never heard of. I expect TE connectivity to give us a good quarter. But you know what? Secretly, I'm praying that there's some, well, it's not so secret. I just told you uh, that there's some minor defect that causes this red hot stock to get slammed, like I said at the top of the show. And that will give you the perfect opportunity to be able to buy someone weakness. I just can't be there to hold your hand that morning. Frankly, this is how I feel about so many stocks these days. I love this market. But it's run a lot, so I feel more comfortable recommending things when there's a possibility they might get hit. Why do I think TE connectivity would be worth buying into any earnings-induced weakness? Why do I want you to be ready, willing, and able to pick some up? First, let me explain why I like it, and then I'll get into what's going to happen tomorrow. TE connectivity, a.k.a. the artist formerly known as Tyco Electronics, was spun off by the old Tyco International when the company broke itself up more than a decade ago. It has exposure to a lot of terrific businesses, including all sorts of electronical components for the transportation, industrial, and communications markets, especially connectors. Uh, what the heck's a connector? Now, if I were a science teacher, I'd tell you a connector is anything that completes a circuit, allowing electricity or an optical signal to go where it's needed. But in practice, connectors protect the flow of power and data within a huge range of products. If it runs on electricity or processes information, you better believe it got at least one connector hidden inside. We're talking everything from the simplest light bulb to the most complicated piece of industrial machinery to the smartest supercomputer. That means TE connectivity ends up having a lot of exposure to one of our favorite concepts, the IoT, the Internet of Things, the connected car, and the electrification and digitization of the developing world, as well as the connected home. These are some red-hot areas. 
which is why the stock has been such an incredible performer. In fact, I go so far as to say the TE connectivity is one of the best performing stocks that you've never heard of. It's rallied 14% in the last three months, 43% over the last 12 months, and it's almost doubled since the last time I recommended it in September 2013. That significantly outperforms the S&P 500. That was up about 67% in the same period. Makes sense. Just consider some of these end markets. TE Connectivity gets 40% of its sales from the automobile industry, where they benefit from the increasing complexity of modern cars. As we put more and more electronics inside our vehicles, TE Connectivity gets more and more business. That means they're making a killing off of the rise of hybrids and electric cars. On average, the company has about $60 of content per vehicle. But for electrics, it's $200 per vehicle. And for the highest-end electrics, like Tesla, it's $300. And that's just their connectors. The company also makes sensors that for the automobile and industrial markets that are really growing rapidly. What else does it have? TE connectivity has exposure to industrial equipment, aerospace and defense, oil and gas, utilities, electrical devices, medical devices, and communications. We know a lot of these areas are in great shape here. The new tax code, by the way, will be a huge boon for makers on industrial equipment as it changes the accounting rules to give companies more of an incentive to invest in new machinery. Aerospace, you don't need to tell you it's on fire. Defense benefits from the GOP controlling both the White House and Congress. It's one of the things that Republicans like to spend money on. Oil and gas, come on, come back. In the past, TE Connectivity said they don't expect to see much pickup here unless oil prices climb back to the 60s. But that's exactly what's happened. The company's got components inside of all sorts of networking and connectivity equipment, an area that's growing like a weed thanks to the rise of the cloud and the data center. That's a lot to like. And it's also why these guys have been generating steady mid-single-digit organic revenue growth. Throw in rising margins, courtesy of efforts to focus on more profitable business lines, and you get mid-teens earnings growth. Hard to find among the old line industrials. What makes me feel confident about TE connectivity right now on the eve of the quarter? I mean, why in the world would I recommend it less than a day before the company reports its earnings? Where's my gun? I'm going to have a gun to my head. All right, I have a smarties to make. I can't find my gun. Anyway, because we had just heard from TE Connectivity at the first analyst day in the four years, first one in four years on December 13th, the company told a very compelling story. That was less than three weeks away from the end of the quarter. And since then, I think things have only gotten better in the company's core markets. While management didn't raise their guidance, they did provide some encouraging long-term targets, forecasting 4 to 6% organic revenue growth and double-digit earnings growth. Management was really enthusiastic about the sheer size of the opportunity in the auto market. They also talked about opportunities for bull-on acquisitions that can boost the growth rate. So I expect the TE connectivity, because they just had that meeting, will report a good quarter. But hopefully the stock will sell off anyway, like as so many situations we've seen already this quarter, even if only briefly. And that'll give you a better chance to buy in. Maybe some line item will be weaker than expected, freaking people out. And you can use that to scale into this one. If TE Connectivity somehow manages to deliver a truly bad quarter, I'll come out here tomorrow night and I will punish myself accordingly. Some self, a whole block of self-flagellation. Although I think that's highly unlikely. Now, the main worry I hear about this one is to do with the auto market, which is TE Connectivity's biggest business by far. Remember, six months ago, everyone thought the automobile industry was peaking. Then we got two big hurricanes that trashed a half million vehicles. Insurance payouts gave the industry a new lease on life. And now the economy is so strong, bolstered by those tax cuts, that it's much easier to imagine the automaker doing the auto market doing, I think, just fine this year. 
Still, according to the very smart analysts who covered this stock from Wells Fargo, even if we get a horrific 13% decline in North American auto sales this year, which I don't think is going to happen, it would only ding the company's earnings by 12 cents a share. That's chump change compared to the $5.29 per share that these guys are expected to make this fiscal year. Best of all, though, what a cheap stock. 17.6 times next year's earnings estimates. Hard to find. Plus, the company has a voracious buyback. In December, they announced a 10% dividend boost, bringing the yield up to 1.75%. Minuscule, but still better than the gift from that German bond. And they also rolled out a $1.5 billion boost to the buyback. That's equivalent of 4.2% of the share count. Remember, the biggest winners in this environment repurchased their own stocks aggressively. And that's what TE Connectivity has done. Over the last five years, they shrunk the share count by more than 16%. Fits right into the stock shortage story I keep talking about. Bottom line. When you find a high-quality company that's making a killing thanks to the booming economy, you should be preparing yourself for the next pullback so you can buy it into weakness. T-Connectivity's been on fire, reports tomorrow morning, and I want you to be ready just in case it goes down, despite delivering what I expect will be a generally strong quarter. If we don't get a pullback, the stock is cheap enough that you can put on a small position, but ideally I need you to wait for that next dip, even as they're few and far between in this market. Watch more man money at Netflix may have reported a stellar quarter, but the company's got me down. I'm going to tell you why. Then, could an epic run in the oil market just be beginning? I'm going off the charts to find out the crude reality and how private company Barstool Sports is swinging for the fences in digital media. So stick with Kramer. Normally, I love it when my favorite stocks surge higher. But today's 10% run in Netflix kind of had me bummed out. Don't get me wrong. The company just reported an insanely good quarter. What makes me upset is the fact that Netflix could have been acquired for less than half of its current price a few years ago. And whoever bought it would now be the king of content. It's not like this was hard to see coming. I did repeatedly come out here and harped on the idea that Apple could pay a $35 billion or $45 billion or even a $50 billion price for Netflix, in each case 100% premium to where the stock was trading at that moment, and it would still make for a phenomenal acquisition. From the get-go, Netflix has owned streaming video, and that was true even before they figured out how to use artificial intelligence to predict exactly what you want to watch. I know CEO Reed Hastings would have been reluctant to sell, but it's hard to turn down that kind of offer. I wish Apple had listened. If they had owned Netflix, they'd never again need to remind analysts that they have a growing service revenue stream because it's all about the analysts with kids and what they would care about. The delivery mechanism is everywhere. The Internet, the programming is superior to nearly everything else out there. All Netflix was missing was a machine to provide the best video experience. And that was Apple. Of course, a Netflix takeover could have also made sense for Google or Amazon. Everyone who's scrambling to make content could have been a potential suitor. But they didn't take the company or the idea seriously, even after I waived what would have been my, you know, kind of piddling investment banking fee. Now, though, it's too late. After today's $22 romp in the wake of fantastic earnings, Netflix currently has a $108 billion valuation. Nobody's going to pay 100% premium for a company that big. It's done. It's not going to be bought. Still, I think the stock has more room to run. Let me tell you why. First, there was a moment in the conference call where the chief content officer, the brilliant and oddly unheralded Ted Sarandos, talked about the success of Bright. That's that urban fantasy cop movie with Will Smith. 
apparently Bright did the equivalent of about more than $100 million in box office on the first weekend. Although, of course, a single movie ticket costs the same as a whole month at Netflix. Todd Younger from Bernstein asked, or his research firm, asked about how it could have done so well despite being widely panned by the critics. But as Sarandos explained, and I quote, the way to reconcile it is to recognize that the critics are an important part of the artistic process, but they're pretty disconnected from the commercial prospects of the firm, of the film, I'm sorry. Instead, he suggests you'll get a more accurate read by looking at Google Trends, Rotten Tomatoes, or IMDb. Plus, the critics tend to be American, which means they're uniquely out of touch with what people like in the rest of the world. The thing is, Netflix is about 5 million households away from saturating the U.S. market, so it's the rest of the world that really matters here. Remember, Netflix knows far more about what you'd like than any other content provider, to say nothing of the critics, because they have the data and the artificial intelligence to figure it out, and they use it. Very different from cable, where it can be a real pain to channel surf, find something maybe you like, maybe you don't, and like, why? You could argue that anyone could have done what Netflix did. I say, so what? Netflix did it first. First mover advantage. It's what matters with this kind of thing. These days, tons of companies are making homegrown content. But we check Netflix first at home. I go to that home page that has Lisa, Jim, Will, and Charlotte. And I click on who is watching, which uh, is me, Jim. And it tells me exactly what I want without even my, they, asking. They know. How did they know I wanted to watch The Punisher? How did they know I couldn't wait for the new Black Mirror? I mean, you know, some sort of masochistic, you know, crazy misogyny, whatever. They were right. I tell you this because it's their job to know. And as long as they keep doing that job and getting the content that you want without you knowing, Wall Street will keep paying up for the stock. So at the end of the day, I am torn. On the one hand, I love that Netflix continues to make so much money for you, the shareholders. On the other, I can't stop thinking about what a huge missed opportunity this would have been for the big boys, for the Apples, for the Amazons, for the Alphabets. A Netflix acquisition would have been a game changer for these guys. Instead, they thought they made the mistake of thinking, duplicate Netflix. And now it's too late for them to duplicate or buy. Good thing it's not too late for you to buy. Yes, for you to buy its amazing stock, even up here. Even at these prices, people, its market capitalization is still too small for its worldwide market opportunity. I want to go to Mike in Texas, please. Mike. Hi, Jim. Mike. Hey, Jim. After purchasing stock in Monster Beverage back in May of last year, I'm up over 50%. And Monster closed today just under its 52-week high. Jim, what do you think uh, I should do? You know, do you have any suggestions? I don't want for you to touch it. Forward? I've been watching this stock. It doesn't act like nothing's going on. It acts like something's going on. And I like the company. I've liked it for a long time. You're going to hold that stock and play it out. I think good things are coming down the line. All right, Netflix just won't quit. It's defying expectations, which is what makes the stock as remarkable as it is. If only Apple had bought it years ago. But you know what? We could substitute Facebook and Google. Doesn't matter. Someone should have bought it because it would have been a real game changer. So stick with Kramer. We needed to talk about the remarkable resurgence in the price of oil. With crude surging back to $64 a barrel, I think it's safe to say that the industry has turned, and it's turned on a dime. 
For most of last year, we got used to oil bouncing around between the low 40s and the mid 50s. Every time it would rally to the higher in the range, you'd hear bulls claiming that oil was ready to rebound, to break out, only to get burned as producers flooded the market with supply at those levels and the price came tumbling back down. Late last year, the oil bulls finally started giving up. So, of course, that's when we got the real recovery. And boy, oh boy, has the backdrop changed for oil. Last year, the big story was the supply glut. Now, suddenly, we have a supply shortage, and that's thanks to a combination of a higher demand from a roaring economy and instability in major oil-producing countries like Nigeria, Venezuela. The latter's output is at a 30-year low. With all these forces, not to mention low inventories and record outflows from the big energy hub in Cushing, Oklahoma, oil has surged up to $64 a barrel for the first time since 2015. So what's next for the price of crude? Does it make sense to jump on the bandwagon here, or should we be concerned that maybe the oil market is experiencing something on the lines of irrational exuberance? Tonight, we're going off the charts to answer that question with the help of Carly Garner. She's a brilliant technician. She's the co-founder of DeCarly Trading, the author of High or Higher Probability Commodity Trading, someone who writes with me at Real Money, and a chartist with a terrific track record when it comes to the price of crude. Garner's worried that the same animal spirits luring speculators into high-flying stocks and even cryptocurrencies may have migrated to the oil market. Bad holders. First, let's take a look at this weekly chart of West Texas Intermediate Crude, which includes the Commodity Futures Trading Commission's Commitment of Traders Report, or the COT Report. Here we go. Down here. Remember, this is the report where they show you the net long or net short position or three of three groups of traders. The large speculators, okay, and those are this green, meaning professional money managers, small speculators, okay, and that means home gamers, and commercial hedgers, people in the real business, companies that need to buy or sell futures contracts for business reasons. We care about the commitment of traders report because, as Garner has shown us many times before, it's really useful to know how the major players are positioned. Historically, when the large speculators, the guys we really care about, amass a huge position one way or another, it can often indicate that the trend is about to change. Makes sense. When everybody's long or owns, that means there's no one left to buy. When everyone's short, no one's left to sell. In the past, Garner's used these figures to predict the direction of oil with surprising accuracy. So what does this number and uh, chart tell us these days? Okay, as of last week, large speculators were holding the single largest bullish position in the history of crude oil futures. History. 666,000 net long contracts. Now, I got to say, that is uh, most bullish position in history. Again, being bullish is not a good sign. It's when everyone's bearish that you want. When everyone's bullish, well, then you don't have anything to convert to be able to start buying and taking these people out. You need to convert bears, but there are no bears. Similarly, commercial hedgers were also holding one of the largest oil hedges in history. Okay, so now you're starting to get in a situation where both sides are on the wrong track if you want to buy oil. Now, theoretically, Garner concedes this trend could continue indefinitely. There's a universe where people just keep buying oil hand over fist, there's a lot of, and there's a lot of risk in the world. But it's probably not this universe. In reality, sooner or later, the trade will have to unwind. And as Garner points out, when one of these massive speculative bets in oil unwinds, you could, do not want to be, get caught in anywhere near the blast radius. How bad could it get? All right, get this. Those 666,000 futures contracts, they represent a huge number of potential sellers if things start go south. If these speculators start liquidating, Garner suspects it could push crude back toward not 60, 
but $50 a barrel. Possibly even lower if the fundamentals take a turn for the worse. But she's very careful to point out that the fundamentals don't actually need to deteriorate for the price of oil to get slammed. Everything could stay the same as long as these speculators feel the need to take profits aggressively. They could crush the price of oil. In other words, shouldn't be this high. Now, there's another dynamic here, which is that the weak dollar has been very good for oil prices. After all, crude is denominated in dollars, right? So check out this dollar, this daily chart of oil versus the dollar index futures, which measures the greenback against a basket of foreign currencies. Look at this correlation. As the dollar plummets, oil has been surging. But Garner notes that the pendulum tends to swing both ways. She thinks that the dollar has now slithered down to areas where it should be able to find a floor of support. If the greenback stops falling, well, that will remove a major prop underneath the oil rally. So you should get that reversion to the mean. The other thing is that the correlation is very strong at the moment. Over the last 30 trading days, the dollar index and crude have settled in opposite directions roughly 90% of the time. But Garners points out that over the previous six months, the negative correlation was more than 50%. Uh, well, it's kind of like 50%. In other words, we've gotten to extreme levels, and Garner thinks that makes a snapback in the dollar seem more likely. If the dollar bounces, then oil should go down, at least according to this comparison. Now, take a look at this weekly chart of the dollar index. Even though the greenback has been making lower lows since 2015, you know, I don't like the greenback. I like the euro. Garner notes that it's always tended to find support as it approaches 90, which is where it is right now. That's why she thinks it has a chance of reversing course sooner rather than later, which again be bad news for oil. Finally, how about the weekly chart of the crude oil futures themselves? Even taking this picture in isolation, Garner thinks that there's little reason to be bullish about oil here. Sure, crude seems to be on the brink of a breakout, right under its ceiling of resistance. But Garner says breakouts tend to be the exception rather than the rule. Many, meanwhile, the relative strength index, or the RSI, an important momentum indicator, is above 70 for the first time since mid-2011. This is a classic sign that oil's gotten overbought, meaning it's come up too far too fast and is now due for a pullback. In addition to being overbought, the price of crude oil is hitting resistance as marked by the 2015 swing of how high it went. And the uptrend channel has been traveling in since the 2016 low. Jeez, it's going to halt here. Bottom line, put it all together. And Garner thinks the chances of a continued oil rally are pretty darn slim. And by the way, the long-term futures suggest the same thing. When you look at the price of crude out five years, prices are much lower. The charts, and especially the huge net loan position in the CFTC's Commitments of Traders report, make Garner worry that oil could be ready and primed for a pullback. My view? Proceed with caution. Man Money's back after the break. Television for 800. Jim Cramer hosts Mad Money on this network. Rachel. With a CNN? No. Gerard. What is CNBC? You got it. Thank you, Gerard. <laughs> it was a great honor to be recognized in Jeopardy last night. Even if the first person didn't really exa- exactly uh, kind of locate me, that's okay. We're all learning lessons on this show. And now it is time. It is time to the light round. Anybody want to see me talk about and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Scared down. It's over the lightning round. It's coming. Dave in Michigan. Dave. Dave, how you doing? Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Dave. Eagles and Patriots fly high for America. 
HPQ is my stock. Yeah, okay, absolutely. Uh, let me see what, it, what the prediction here. Um, okay, HPQ, very strong stock downgraded today. I say bye-bye-bye. Let's go to Dennis in California. Dennis. Hi, Jim. Booyah from beautiful Monterey Bay. Oh, God, um, you're lucky. What's up? I'd like to know what you think about coherent stocks. I like laser beam photonics, and it's the best at what it does. Jake in Missouri. Jake. Hey, Jim, this is Jake. You brought the for Kansas City, Missouri. I just want to congratulate you on that Philly win. But what I really want to talk about is D.H. Robinson, the Fortune 500. You should, because you know why? That's one of the best stocks out there. It's not just all FedEx. It's not just all XBO. And it's not just all UPS. It's them, too. Robert in South Carolina. Robert. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. I'm a finance student and a uh, model my investing approach is a cross between you and Warren Buffett. Um, I'd like your opinion on your Rindai, that stock symbol YRD. Okay, Chinese stock, I don't really follow it. The ones I've been liking are Baidu and Alibaba. Thank you for those kind words. I am not in that gentleman's pantheon. He's wait. He's up here. The rest of us are here. Let's go to Lorraine in California. Lorraine. Hi, Jim. SPG. I'm down 10%. Seller hold. No, 4.45% yield. It's a very well-run company. They'll get through this. They'll be the last survivor other than Federal Realty. I need to go to McGregor in Pennsylvania. McGregor. A super bell-bound booyah, Jim. A well-put uh, my, booyah. <laughs> my question is about Green Plains, Inc. GPRE. I don't like that. They're all plants. I think it's only a matter of time before the president says maybe it's a bad idea. And that, ladies and gentlemen, of that. Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. All right, what resonates with millennials? That's something you should be thinking about all the time because millennials are now the largest demographic in America, and the older ones have been in the workforce long enough to have real money to spend. The future belongs to them. Can you do? And at this moment, at least, when it comes to the male half of the millennial demographic, and increasingly, by the way, the better half of, of the country, too, nothing is more appealing than a site called Barstool Sports and a company called Barstool Sports. It's a comedic brand, it's actually larger than that, that's grown from a local Boston newspaper to a regional blog to a diversified natural and national media property with its own channel on Sirius Radio. It's a video series. It's merchandising and big-time advertising and sponsorships and perhaps the most fun site you're ever going to go to, even as they are totally on the edge and out there, like, frankly, we all secretly dream to be, don't we? It's a privately held company, massive cult following. I think we can learn a lot from them, a lot about hard work that they do, even if, okay, they're Patriot fans. It's all right. So let's take a closer look with Dave Portnoy, founder of Barstool Sports, and Erica Nardini, Barstool's CEO. I don't think I've ever had a pre-show larger interest than both of you guys. Welcome, Mr. Portnoy. <laughs> Welcome, Mr. Nardini. Thank Got to go with that. Now, all right, I want to have a real conversation. I am fascinated by this. I'll tell you why. Because, you know, we book a lot of guests. And, and frankly, people say, oh, that's, that's nice. You know, do you like the stock? You guys are known for breaking through. How'd you do it? And tell people how you can break through, too, like Damon John said last night, but it's not easy. 
Well, yeah, I, I think a lot of it, it's the authenticity of what we bring to the table. We, I've been doing this for 15 years, so I started handing out newspapers outside of subways. I'd wake up at like 4 a.m., hand out papers. I'd then write. I had a million different aliases for myself because I didn't want people to know I was doing it all myself. So sales, marketing, it was all Devilfish Dave. That was a name I had. So stupid in hindsight, but I didn't want people to know it was all me. Um, then I'd hand out papers when people went home in the subway, and it just grew word of mouth. There was no grand plan, really, but it was just... Hard work. Natural. Yeah. It's natural. And we're yeah. all used to phony. We're all used to things that aren't uh, uh, authentic. Now, you come at the company, and yeah. you're one of how many people we interviewed and how many women? I was the only woman, and I was the end of a line of 70-ish people looking for this gig. And how did you uh, know about it? I know you were at AOL. You had a very distinguished background yeah. in, in online publishing. How did you guys know that this was a good fit? I was a fan of Dave since the beginning when he started the paper. Barstool, to me, is what guys say. It's how they think. It's how they talk. It's what they love. And here was this guy who took a bet on himself and strived to build something, and I wanted to be a part of it. We are now in a moment where if you want to sell something, you have to truly do experiential. You guys have managed to marry the concept of an exciting place to go. And really, you can do it through Facebook. It's not necessarily the site. I like site. But you've been figuring, you're figuring out a way to sell without making us feel like we're being sold to. How did you come up with that? In a weird way, we do it by telling you we're selling. Uh, we've always been very genuine with the audience, which is, hey, if you don't come support this, we may disappear tomorrow. We need our group of people to appear to be an army. And it grew loyal, and they want us. They liked reading it. But we're pretty authentic right. and in your face. Hey, we got to sell this. we got to make money, get behind it, support it, and we'll keep being us, I guess. Okay, so when you're playing, when they're playing the Jags, okay, and you make fun of the Jags in a brilliant way, and I also love that jag in the tree. I mean, it, it, this is a national phenomenon now, right? I mean, no one just says, I hate those guys. They're Pat fans. I think they say, I like those guys. They're real. Yeah, people love us. They hate us. Right. But you have to respect what we've built, and we've done it because we're on the same level as our fans, and that's why they buy and that's why they watch, and that's why they read, and that's why they listen. Why aren't these big advertisers scared? Why aren't they afraid of associating with someone who's so genuine that you can't control? I think some are afraid, but the ones who play with us and the ones who get involved break through, which is what we've done, and we enable brands to do that with us, and Dave's been doing that with brands since the beginning. And there's an appetite for it. We've been doing it for 15 years, so right. advertisers were scared in the beginning, but right. it's moving our way. I think it's just so much clutter that we resonate with people, and you can't argue with the results. Well, we want to talk about the results because, again, I want people to be you as best as you can, and it's working financially, right? Now, you're raising money. You have aspirations to be what with this money? Well, I'd like to sell the company for at least $250 million, then retire and go live well, in but, golf. But Clooney sold his lousy tequila for a bill. Yeah, Why but Clooney's, such a low Clooney, Clooney's Clooney. That was like a tequila brand. I mean, I'd be happy then to go do something else. If Erica wants to sell it for a billion, let her. I'd be all happy about you that. Feel you constrained by that ceiling? No. Look, we are a huge brand. We're a big media company. You are company. a huge brand. We are a huge brand. And the other thing is we're not, because we have a loyal audience that has been with Dave for 14 years and all of our guys, Big Cat, KFC, our whole roster, we can do anything. We can become a commerce company. We can sell shoes. We can be an alcohol brand. Right. We can create a boxing promoter. We, there is nothing that this company can't do because we have an audience. We listen to them, and we create only for them. Okay. Let me ask you this. I, I spent a lot of time trying to get rich, okay? I admit that, all right, because I didn't have any money. I, I want to get rich so I can tell the truth. 
um, telling the truth is a great gift, isn't it? And why aren't you more afraid? Why aren't either of you more afraid? Well, I can speak for me. As we grew, nobody could fire me. So, you know, when people complain, they say, well, I'm going to tell your boss and we're going to get rid of you. It's like, well, I am the boss. Nobody yes. can get rid of me. So yes. there's nothing you can do. When I took the investment from Chernin to begin with, and we had a Who's lot of... Who's a wild man? Yeah, and, and we had a lot of people approach me. I was never interested. They made it very clear they bought into the voice. So for me, that was a powerful combination. A, a great investor, a great backer with pockets who believed in what we were saying. For me, that was the perfect marriage. And that's why we haven't changed. We haven't backed down at all and why we still get in trouble a lot. But we stayed true to who we are. And uh, for a woman in a rough and tumble world yeah. of, of male so-called dominated journalism, yeah. fearless, not worried? Not worried. Fearless. Not worried at all. The only people that matter is our audience. And they're the only ones who can hire us and fire us, so we stay true to them. Oh, that's great. Okay, one last question. Uh, any chance at all, in either of your eyes, that a dynasty that uh, has been on for some quite some time <laughs> might possibly wane, uh, let's say, a little less than two weeks from now? I'm glad you asked. I brought you a gift because this is a prediction show, a stock show. So we brought you a T-shirt, and this would be... It's going to show what I want, this, isn't it? This, this is going to show what I want. score here for the final. So right here, this is my gift to you coming on your show, and this is what we have You're fired. in two weeks. You're fired from <laughs> my show. Uh, this shirt is for you. That You can put that right well, on the back. Well, you don't want this to be one of those you know that could be a great revenge item, too, yes. on eBay. How that's, many of these you made? The, one. Just one. Well, that's one on one for I, you. I got guys who will pay a million dollars if it turns out to be Maybe a time to be I want to congratulate you on everything. Thank you. I am Thank not you. kidding. Appreciate you are it. what I want people to be, okay? Because you own yourself. You own yourself. Appreciate it's a hard work, okay? That's Dave Portnoy, founder of Barstool Sports, and Erica Nardini, Barstool CEO. And this is what you should be, people. You should want to work for yourself and create and be successful. Work hard to do it. Stick with Cram. All right, after the close, a couple disappointments. Texas Instruments, that's a rare miss. And the stock is headed down. I'm not sure quite yet whether it is time to be able to take the plunge because that one, you know, was a real surprise. And then United Airlines, United Continental, that not a total surprise, but that group's been so red hot. I thought a, a rising tide would lift all planes. It didn't happen. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll find it just for you. Ready to man money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange, which is now a podcast. Subscribe today. It's your one-stop shop for the day's top business stories. Plus, listen in for lots of original reporting, in-depth conversation, and some of the best of CNBC's award-winning investigative work. Subscribe to The Exchange for free, and you can always catch The Exchange live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then.